Hello there, I'm Giglamesh, and welcome to Prompted, the official podcast for the writing prompt section of reddit.com, where you are prompted to write stories, and here we showcase the best of them, all with the goal of helping each other to become better writers. Welcome to episode 21 of Prompted. I'm Giglamesh, and again, I'll be your host for this episode. This episode's theme is derived from the number in the title. Yes, 21. The magic number you want to hit on every hand of Blackjack. Gambling and vice is our theme, ladies and gentlemen. And this episode's stories are so good, we really hope you'll get addicted. So sit down, put on your best poker face and try to guess who has an ace up their sleeve. Our first story was written by Winsome Jesse, and the prompt comes from our very own Katie. It reads, With his last dollar, he decided to play. Red and Bobby hustled through the gold and red maze of pillars, velvet chairs, and wearing slot machines. Red in the lead. Bobby hanging on by a pinky finger. It's so loud! Bobby shouted over the jangling toots and tweets of won and lost games, of dealers calling cards and short-skirted women selling drinks and cigarettes. He jammed his free hand over his ear, but it made no difference. This is it! This is it! said Red, pulling Bobby up, pointing ahead down a line of circular tables surrounded by moats of low-slung men in old clothes and wreaths made of tobacco smoke. Like I saw it, just like I saw it in my dream. They called it roulette, a French game for sophisticated men. Bobby watched closely as Red pulled him closer and closer to the table, a long table with a spinning wheel at the center and a grass-green covering lined over with numbers and colors. Red lifted Bobby up as the wheel spun, and a silver ball danced out, skipping and jumping and rolling across the perimeter of the wheel. Like I saw it, said Red, dumb with joy, squeezing Bobby across the middle just a hair too tightly. This is it. This is where it happens. Bobby nodded, struggling out of his father's arms down to the floor. He stepped forward and put his hands on the wood. It was smooth as glass, glossy and fine. Red pulled a roll of bills out of his pocket. Even Bobby could see his hands were shaking. Red stepped towards the table, arms outstretched, like he was bringing a babe to baptism. The men at the table looked at him, then looked back down at the table and the work before them. A man in a white shirt and red vest pointed across the casino floor. Chips, sir, he said. A warning, a command but certainly not an invitation. Chips only. Red bowed, low and deep, and stumbled away across the casino, leaving Bobby behind. Bobby picked at the carved lines in the rim of the table, feeling the eyes of those tired, slouched men, but ignoring them, waiting for his father. Red came back invigorated, clinking plastic chips in his hands. It was a small pile, even Bobby could see that, but Red swooped to the table, eyes bright, mouth pressed in a crooked smile. He watched, he learned. 
Every now and then he looked down at Bobby and winked. This is how I remember it, how I saw it. We just gotta wait, wait for the right moment. Bobby waited, and so did Red. At one point, a woman in a black dress bumped into Bobby, knocking him down, but no one said anything, and Bobby just got back to his feet. Ready? said Red suddenly. Bobby blinked. Huh? I just remembered, said Red, swallowing as he rolled the chips in his hands nervously. It wasn't me. It wasn't. It was you. You did it. He lined the chips up into a neat stack and pressed them into Bobby's hands. Even Bobby was surprised at how well they fit in his little hands. It's all on you, said Red, lifting Bobby up onto his hip, hanging the boy up over the table. I know you can do it. I saw it. Yes, I saw it. I saw you do it. This is why we're here. Everything on one roll, okay? That's how you did it in my dream, right? Go ahead. Go ahead and put it all down on the square you want. That's how it happened. That's how we won. Red was squeezing too hard again. Bobby couldn't ignore the looks this time. The men were all staring at him, waiting for something, waiting for Bobby to choose. All on one, said Red urgently, squeezing just a little tighter. That's how we do it. That's how we win big. But, but I don't... Bert's down, said the man in the vest. Red shook the boy. Now, Bobby, now! Bobby dropped the stack on the table. Six, his age. The only number that felt like it meant something. The wheel spun. Red didn't let go, just kept squeezing and squeezing. The wheel spun and the silver ball popped out. It danced and skipped. Bobby couldn't even find the six on the wheel. Maybe they didn't use that number. Maybe. The wheel slowed down. The ball slowed down. Red squeezed even harder. So hard, Bobby thought he might faint. The ball stopped. Dropped. Settled in. Black 33. The world stopped too, but only for Bobby and only for Red. The man in the vest gathered up Red's chips. Some men got more chips, others lost chips. The game went on. Bobby was breathing, and so was Red. Slowly, so slowly, the fog started to lift. Why six? whispered Red, setting Bobby back down on the floor. Why six? You didn't pick six in my dream. Bobby shook his head. I I'm six? It, it was all I could think? Red closed his eyes. You ain't six, Bobby. You ain't. Why'd you do that? Do you know what you did? Why'd you do it? You ain't six, okay? You ain't six! Bobby couldn't think what to say, couldn't see what he'd done wrong, but knew just as clear that he'd done something wrong. Six in April, he said. I turned. You ain't six! roared Red, shoving the boy to the ground. Some men looked, some of the women in short skirts looked. No one did anything. I saw you win! You won! That's what was supposed to happen. That was all our money, Bobby. That was it. Why'd you pick six, Bobby? Why'd you do it? Why are you so mean? Why are you so mean and stupid, huh? You ain't six, Bobby. You ain't. Red clenched his fists. Bobby knew what happened next, but he didn't actually, because Red just walked away. Out into the maze of red and gold, into the noise and the swirl of people and smoke, Red walked away. 
and Bobby sat next to the roulette table, where the men now went out of their way not to look at him. The carpet was red and gold. Bobby absently traced the line of a flower on the weave. Then he saw something just there, where the bottom lip of the table turned to shadow. A chip, one chip. Bobby picked it up. He would give it to his father when his father returned. They had something now, not nothing. And maybe Red would play it this time, like in his dream, his first dream. The one he told Bobby about on the bus over. The one where he won, and they had money, and they bought good food and a good house, and Bobby's mother got that medicine they all said she needed but never got. That was a good dream. Bobby wanted his father to come back, if only to hear that dream again. But Red didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back. Bobby couldn't see what came next. He'd been living his father's dream for as long as he could remember. He felt like he was too young to have his own dreams, too young to make those dreams come true, like his father had tried to do. So he stood up. He couldn't see over the table. He couldn't see the board. He held up his chip. And poked the man in front of him. Six, please, he said in a voice loud enough to cut through the clatter. That's how old I am. Our next story was written by Late to the Prompt, and the prompt was submitted by Lorex in Oz. An elite poker player in the final years of their life receives an invitation to join other elderly players in an exclusive tournament. The buy-in is what little remains of their life force. The winner will walk away with their youth restored. The first prototype was created by four geniuses at Berkeley. It was called the Transfer of Life, and it did exactly that. Somehow, through some deal struck with the devil, they figured out how to move one human being's life force into another. The person receiving the life force gained months, even years, while the other person lost an equivalent portion of their time amongst the living. When news broke of their machine, the Berkeley geniuses went public. Literally. They uploaded the blueprints for everyone to grab. Anyone with a high enough IQ could build their own device. And they did. Smart dads built a machine in their garage and transferred their own years to their sick child. Grandparents with terminal illnesses began gifting away their remaining years. Things got out of hand quickly. Need a house? How about giving away one year of your life force as a down payment to the seller? Can't pay your hospital bill, not to worry. Just siphon off a bit of your life force to the doctor. Just turn 16 and want a car. Who cares about a few lost years when you're driving an $80,000 sports car? The dealer sure doesn't mind living a few years more. Within the first year, people were using their newborns to give themselves an extra life. If that bothered you, then you could suck the force out of some homeless guy at the black market clinic down the street. Religious nuts couldn't decide if this immortality was a sin, or a gift from God. Things got crazy. Governments tried to outlaw all life force machines. The stock market crashed. World War III happened. Everything went to hell. 
Through all of the chaos, casinos flourished. They had the unlimited funds and lack of conscience to harness people's life forces, while regulated governments and banks could not. In no time, global currencies were valued by varying amounts of life force, and it was all controlled by the casinos. The casinos took over the world. The professional poker circuit took on a new life, pun intended, where players gambled away their life force. Televised poker became a sick obsession followed by billions of fans. They couldn't get enough of seeing players grow older and older as hours ticked by, while the chip leaders grew younger and younger. There was nothing more exciting than watching a 30-year-old suddenly lose it all in one hand and exit looking decades older. Most legal tournaments forced you out once you hit your 70s. But it wasn't uncommon for players to drop dead at the table. Every four years, there was the World Cup of Geriatrics, a contest where participants had to be at least 80 years old and have less than three years to live. Some exceptions were made if players had terminal illnesses. The World Cup of Geriatrics was the most watched televised event in the history of mankind. They played to the death. My name is Alec. I am a world-ranked professional poker player and I will be a participant in the World Cup of Geriatrics for the first and probably last time. It's fine if I don't come out the champion. I'm ready to go. I've been alive for 287 years. Our third story was written by Reverino, and the prompt was submitted by the Wishing Fish. It reads... You wait tables in a small southern town, and are private to your regular's intimate details. Some of the secrets are starting to keep you awake at night. I've long been a tobacco enthusiast, a connoisseur of sorts. For me it's never been about the chemical components, more the ritual, the living aspect of consumption. In my coat, hanging to the right of the kitchen exit, I have one pack of Israeli cigarettes, which are significantly stronger than American ones thanks to laws imposed over the last 60 years. I have three tins of chewing tobacco in the large outer pockets, two from the US and one from Germany. On a chain connected to a small pouch on the right sleeve is a snuff box, filled with a rare Javanese snuff. I procured it on a recent vacation following a hint I had received from a fellow enthusiast. I had to travel to a small island, not on any of the maps I had with me. Atop a mountain, or more accurately a daunting hill, lived a family of four. They came out to greet me. The youngest son ran from the sofa, ducking under a large metal pipe, and dove into a bow. I bought two kilos, which flung me into an unexpected poverty. I have rope tobacco from South America in the inner pockets, so as to maintain a certain level of warmth. Both the upper pockets hold my pipes, one straight and one bent. I keep my good ones at home, but never leave without at least two, each giving a different smoke. At the moment I am wearing an apron, for I am at work. In my back pocket is a can of snus, a Swedish lip tobacco, peculiar in that one consumes the juice rather than spitting, which is perfect for the food industry. I don't think much of my job. I use it more of a means of furthering my hobby. I've been at this truck stop diner for five years now, 
all in all satisfactory. I see all sorts of people here. Small ones, tall ones, fat ones, very few are attractive. Sometimes people smoke or chew, and if their brand piques my interest, I strike a conversation. There's normally enough time. We have three, maybe four people a night during the winter. People in this part of Texas tend not to travel long distances, and truckers normally stop a few miles ahead at the junction. My hopes were low on coming across something interesting this night, let alone something to beat yesterday's find. Fifty-year-old fat man, face like a bear, unseasonably tan, with a long slender pipe full of what he called doka. After a long talk, I found out he was an Iranian who was on his way to visit his estranged daughter. We chatted, he finished his coffee, and we said our goodbyes. The diner was empty, besides one of our usuals, Ralph, a thin man who orders eggs over easy at 2am and speaks loudly to himself as he eats them. They don't really hear him down in the kitchen, but I get the full story daily. Sometimes it's benign stuff, bills or women or sport. Once I heard him talking about stabbing a woman, wasn't sure if he meant he had done it or was lamenting someone else's actions. I left it alone, partly out of respect for his implementation of ritual and routine, and partly due to him being a large portion of our winter sales. I switched snooze pouches and began sweeping, mainly to avoid being assigned a more strenuous job as I normally am at these hours. Ralph stopped mid-scream as someone entered the diner. He seemed familiar, though I'm not quite sure why. He was an old man, I wager late 60s, early 70s. He had a large, bold spot like my dad, and a war-torn grey beard that went down to his mid-torso. As I made eye contact with him, he flashed a vile grin. Yellowed nubs of teeth lined his mouth. He then proceeded to hobble to one of our booths and sat expectantly. Pulling out my pad, I asked him what he would like to order. Just a coffee for me. He had a withering voice that led one to believe he was once a much greater man, a stentorian voice worn through years of grief, and if I wasn't mistaken, pipes of tobacco. I jotted down his order, not that I needed to, and went to fetch the coffee pot. As I walked away, I spotted him pulling out a pouch from the corner of my eye, purple velvet with a golden drawstring. He poured a brown powder and touched his eyes with it, before snorting the rest. In that moment, he seemed to lose several years as his face contorted in ecstasy. I snatched the coffee pot and made my way back to his table. If you don't mind me asking, I said as I poured him his coffee, what was that you had in the pouch there? He put on a sheepish grin and pulled out the pouch once more. Tobacco. I've never seen one you put in your eye, though. I've never seen any so fine. The old man chuckled softly and beckoned me to sit. I complied. This ain't no ordinary tobacco, no sir. This is the real game changer. Best you'll ever do in your life. He leaned closer. I bet you want to know what's so special about it then, huh? I nod expectantly. He leans back and prepares his yarn. Well, I first came across it 20, maybe 30 years back, way back when I was still in traveling condition. I went with my old friends in the brigade to Africa. 
One of them had a friend or a girlfriend or something down there. Gave us a little excuse to explore. We wound up in a small town, Gowana, it was called. Complete nowhere. The locals were fantastic, energetic people, though. Never met kind or souls. Only one of us spoke the language, but goddamn if it wouldn't like they'd come down with some sort of telepathy. You'd have what you wanted before you even asked. One of them caught me smoking a cigarette, a pack of Marlboros I'd bought from home, and gave me a look what meant nothing else but that he wanted one. And, well, I felt obliged to share, given all they'd done for us. The old man sipped his coffee and gave me a crooked thumbs up. I took credit for it, even though the pot had been made by Sue four hours back. So he eagerly smoked up, coughing the whole way through, though he didn't look satisfied. Not that he was ungrateful, what have you, but it just didn't do nothing for him. He gestured me to follow him, and that I did. It was real easy to be hooked on these guys. Do what they say, and it was always a good time. So he takes me down to some sort of shrine, and opens up one of the many jars set upon a big limestone slab. He hesitated for a minute and ran, literally ran, to fetch my friend the translator. When they returned, he started chewing his ear off in that language of his, and it all sounded like nonsense to me, but my buddy seemed to be shocked by what he heard. Now he's telling me about this powder here, it's a tobacco, but he says it might be too much for you. He says that you may not be ready for it, but he wants you to thank your kindness. My friend turns and converses more with the native, and they speak for a long time. He says you should not take this if you are not prepared. And so I told him I'd been a smoker all my life, and that there weren't no tobacco what could surprise me. The old man laughs and leans in again. So the native fella, he shows me how to use it, and I follow him, and bam, I'm in heaven. The next 30 minutes were sheer ecstasy. But it weren't like no drug, no sir. This was a slice of heaven where you still had all your faculties. I felt like a young boy, or six or seven, spry and limber and ready to burst. Over the next week, I kept on doing it. Even traded the rest of my carton of smoke to the other natives. Sure enough, I ended up staying, much to the protest of my friends. And I learned their language, and I had a hut, and I became like a prolonged guest. And of course, I used as much of the mystery tobacco as I could. Believe me, pal, the effect never dulls. Best years of my life, that's for sure. He leaned back once more, finished his coffee, and looked at me. I finally noticed how yellowed his eyes were, eyes that seemed to be conveying a sense of futility. But then one day, the native who showed me the tobacco came to my hut. He had a real urgent look on his face, told me to follow him. And so he took me back to the shrine and told me everything about the tobacco. Told me things he thought my friend had translated over to me. See, this weren't made no ordinary way. No tobacco's that good. No, see, this had a secret ingredient. You know what it was? Uh, coca? Some root? He smiled forlorn. Bone, son. Human bone. I froze. See, I don't know if my friend assumed he misheard or something, but I had no clue when I started, and sure, I was shocked to hear it at first, too, but uh, then they told me it's a religious thing, and then they told me the bones were given willingly, and then he told me about the oath. Oath? I inquired. There's a sort of uh, unspoken oath to the users of this product, son. An oath that the users, the addicts, they gotta give their bones back. 
When the time comes to die, you have an obligation to return the product. See, from what I heard, uh, normal bones don't do the trick, strangely enough. Only bones what taste good enough come from the users. Trying other bones just makes for a useless tobacco. And sure enough, I wasn't about to quit. This stuff made my life living magic. Though I could tell it was ripping my body to shreds. Hell, could you believe I'm 52? He laughed and wheezed and reapplied the powder. So a couple more years passed and I made my way back home. Took with me kilos of the stuff. No idea how I got it past customs. Best part is you use so little each time. Keeps it real easy to have a supply. Still got two kilos left as a matter of fact. This, however, brings me to uh, today. Today, buddy. I'm off to the airport. You're headed back. I'm headed to die, son. And despite that, I can tell you I would want nothing more than to be desecrated for this heavenly powder. I ain't got no regrets. Ain't sad my life went this quick. No, sir. I lived in ecstasy. I lived, son. That's more than most can say. The oath grounds you. Makes you make the most. As a matter of fact, I believe I ought to be on my way soon anyhow. Flight ain't in too long, and it'd be a damn shame if I died on the way. <laughs> he laughed and wheezed once more. My mind was filled with morbid curiosity. Seemingly ignoring those thoughts, I blurted out, Can I try? He smiled one final time and handed me his bag. Everything you need's in there, son. Two big bags and a list of instructions. Wordlessly, he stood up, put down a dollar for the coffee, and made his way out the door. Right before leaving, he turned to me once more. I don't care if you end up using it or not, but if you do... His voice deepened and lost its wheeze. Don't let me down. Inside the bag were two large sacks, the small velvet pouch, and a worn piece of paper. Following the instructions, I applied the powder. My body filled with warmth. My mind drifted away. I turned the paper over. On the back was a map. Our next story was written by Mass Fusion. The prompt was submitted by Kairu of Kairu. It reads, A night at a high-stakes underground casino where memories, sanity, passions, and even one's very humanity can be wagered in a wide variety of games. I walked into the Devil's Den Casino knowing what was in store for me. Gambling, but not the regular kind with money. Here, you could wager the very fabric of your being. Prizes for winning, you ask? Well, you got to keep whatever you wagered. That may sound like an incredibly unfair prize, but to me, it didn't matter. I was just here for the adrenaline rush knowing that if I lost, I'd lose a piece of myself. And that made the rush so intense, it felt like a drug. I spent my first hour betting some old memories against some random people in the blackjack tables. Won all games, easy and relaxing, I might say, but not the same could be said for those who lost. These people left with precious things taken from them 
but I didn't care. Not my problem. After finishing the last game, I decided the bar was worth checking out. And oh dear, was it an interesting place. You could find all sorts of people just sitting at the bar. Some sad after losing. Others just here for the drinks. Shady characters were a common sight. Wouldn't surprise me if most of them were thugs or gang members. Maybe something else. Who the hell knows. I wasn't here to poke around. Just play for the rush. Yes. The rush. And what a damn rush it was. I was approached by some guy at the bar. He claimed he was a stockbroker. Went by the name Neville. He was an odd-looking fellow and awkward with his wording and interactions, but we chatted for a while. What brings you here? asked the stockbroker with a seemingly sinister smile. Adrenaline junkie. I love the rush of knowing what's on the line if you lose. Makes the game so much more worthwhile for me, I answered back. Ah, I see. One of those types. I've got nothing left to lose, lost my job, my house, my family. So, now I'm here to indulge in some fine drinks and inevitably lose all that's left of myself, said Neville, with a dead look on his face. I could tell I was talking to a broken man, a man that was merely alive in bodily form, but in spirit, was dead. We parted ways, soon I found myself at the poker table. I had yet to lose a game in this casino, so my confidence was at an all-time high. To make things more interesting, I made the craziest move of all. I wagered my very own humanity. Feeling confident as I was, fear was not something present in me at the time. And the rush I felt from wagering my humanity was the most intense I've ever felt. The game went my way for most of the duration, until it happened. I lost. In a sudden and unforeseen turn of events, I was beat by an elderly Asian gentleman. And here's where everything went south for me. The man, the elderly gentleman that won, stood up, shook my hand, and said, Thank you for playing. Best of luck to you now. And left the table after putting on his coat, jacket, and hat, leaving me there with a blank expression on my face. Suddenly, the room went dark, and a red glow started emanating from the walls and floor. I was surrounded by the thugs I had seen at the bar earlier. Or so I thought they were thugs. Now, now I found out why the casino was called the Devil's Den. These thugs were actually demonic henchmen. They grabbed me, restraining me in the process. And I could see their ugly demonic faces. I had never felt so much fear in my entire life. All of a sudden, a big shadowy figure emerged from a back room. He slowly walked up to me. 
I could see a cane in his hand with fine engravings on it. It looked like some ancient language of sorts. Then he was standing in front of me face to face. And I could see it. The horns on his head, his dark red skin. I was terrified. He looked at me for a long while and then he uttered these words in a low, coarse voice. So, my child, you have lost all that is your humanity. It is now mine, and you will serve me here for all eternity. I started screaming, kicking, trying to break free, when suddenly his cold hand covered my face. I could feel myself becoming increasingly tired. I, I was losing my humanity and I was so scared at this moment but then I blacked out I awoke minutes later a cold and empty feeling in my body as if I were dead but somehow living then the shadowy man said to me welcome my dear boy to your new home here you will stay for all eternity, serving me, aiding me, and most importantly, recruiting for me. I fell to the floor, realizing what I had become. My urge to feel an adrenaline rush led me to this. As I stood back up, I felt the cold take over my body and I unwillingly followed the shadowy man, uttering these final words towards him. Who are you? I said. I am Damon. Come now, we have much to discuss, he said as I was led to a dark back room, a place where my new life was just about to begin. Unfortunately, that's it again for this episode. The stories this episode were lovely, so please do check out some of the author's other work. And once again, until next time, good words and good writing.